So as we begin our reading in John chapter 12 and verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, several years ago, we were out bird hunting, and we were going along the main road that heads back into the shack, and as we were going by, I saw something move in the brush. I got the four-wheeler stopped and hopped off and grabbed the gun and went around back over to the brush where I saw that thing move, expecting to find a partridge in there. And I took a step or two back into the trees and all of a sudden backed out a little faster than I went in because what I came across was a skunk. I was fully anticipating and expecting a partridge to be there and to get a shoot something. And I very quickly realized that it was not what I expected. And so out I went. Well, that came to my mind this week because of this passage, believe it or not. The title that I give for this sermon as we look through this passage is The Unexpected Expected. And the reason is because at this point in Jesus' ministry, everybody's expecting something. It appears to me as you look through the circumstances related here and the different insights that we have, that uh, everything is escalating to kind of a fever pitch. You have people that are pretty sure that he's going to come and maybe topple Rome and set up the kingdom. And you have other people that are pretty sure that they're going to try to make it through the holiday quietly and then kill him afterwards. They didn't want to kill him in the holiday when you have so many more people from out of the area traveling into the, into the area for the celebration of the Passover. And so they do not want it to happen then when it could turn into a riot or turn into all kinds of excitement. They don't want that to happen. So they're trying to keep everything quiet and make it through the holiday and then get rid of him as quietly as they can. But God's going to weigh in on this too. And as we recognize in the passage, Jesus says, My hour has come. God worked His timing and right at the very moment that Christ needed to die for our sins, well, that's when it happened. And so there's a definitely a spirit of expectation within the crowd, but we're going to find that it is not what they expected. Over the years, I've thought, how in the world can you go from Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, on Sunday to crucify Him at the end of the week? And you know what? I think a big part of the impetus for that is because they expected something and it wasn't what they expected. And they were able to be turned 
to be shouting crucify him at the end of the week. Well, we see that if we back up just a little bit into chapter 11, verses 47 through 50, the Pharisees call an emergency council meeting to figure out what in the world to do with Jesus. Because he has raised Lazarus from the dead, which is his greatest miracle up to this point. And so it's getting all kinds of notice and recognition. And people are beginning to believe and think, boy, this has got to be the guy. And it says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then a few verses later, in verse 55, it says, Now the Passover of Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Now it says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was... He should let them know so that they might arrest him. So no pressure there, right? And then when we got into the last passage that we looked at in John chapter 12, in verses 10 and 11, it says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so when you come into the passage that we're looking at today, things are already wound up in Israel. The people are there looking for Christ. Is Is he going to come or is he not going to come? The chief priests have given orders to, if you see him, you let us know so that we can go arrest him. There's an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas speaks up. This guy's got to go. Everybody gets on board with that idea. And so things are really tense. And then what do we see when we come right into verse 12? Jesus coming riding into Jerusalem on this little donkey and presenting himself as king. In verses 7 and following, it says, "...the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead..." continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. The people that had seen Lazarus risen from the dead are continuing to spread the news. The crowds are flocking to Jesus because they've heard of this sign. And so there's all this tumult in the crowd. And then it says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so you see that there's a large group of people that at this point, because of what they've heard with Lazarus and others have seen with Lazarus rising from the dead, they're convinced He's coming and He's going to set up the kingdom. This this Hosanna, it's a quote from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The word Hosanna means God save or save now. And not only that, but it has another anchor in their history. Because you see, about a hundred years before, in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes had taken over the temple. And a family of priests called the Maccabees revolted against that. And they rose up and they went in and they retook the temple from the Greeks. And when they revolted against the Greeks and, and drove them out of it, they sang the same psalm. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God saved. And not only that, but there was a coin that they used in Israel that pointed back to the uh, Maccabees' second revolt. And the image on the coin was a palm leaf. And so that may also have been in their thinking as they go to do this. But at any rate, Jesus comes riding into town on this donkey. 
And they come out and they're yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just as the Maccabees had done when they drove out the Greeks, I think they're anticipating that Jesus is going to come in and drive out the Romans. And he's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they're going to be in control. Now, they're rolling out the red carpet, welcoming him, saying, even the King of Israel. Now, that is what he was doing. He was presenting himself as king. It says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9.9 said exactly that. And so Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as he comes into town. And so that amps it up as well. And so people are more and more sure, yeah, he's got to be the guy. The Pharisees, when they saw this, they said to one another, See that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's kind of interesting that John then goes right after that into verses 20 and 22. And what does he say? Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so <laughs> fits right in with what they said. The whole world has gone after him. And so then next thing John does is shows that there were Gentiles involved in the mix as well. Now, who were these Greeks? Many commentators say they would have been kind of the first of the wanderers. Greeks uh, were big on philosophy. And there began to be a group of people that would kind of wander around the world in pursuit of truth through philosophy. And so these are truth seekers. More than likely in this context, maybe people that had proselytized to Judaism. They are there for the feast. So you got these wise men, just like at his birth, right? At the, at the birth of Christ, you see wise men from the east coming to recognize him for who he is. And here, when you get close to his death, you basically have wise men from the West. They were saying the whole world has gone after him. Well, they're right. Now it's not just Jews. Now it's some Gentile people also being incorporated into the Gospel here, which is the direction the Gospel is going to end up going. Well, then in verse 23, and I think this brings it right to the climax, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, Jesus, at many times before this, has mentioned an hour. My hour has not yet come. It's not my time yet. And every time that He's mentioned it, it has been in the negative. It's not my time. It's not my day. It's not my hour yet. And now, with these people having laid the palm branches in front of Him and shouting, Save now, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, Jesus says, Now is my time. Now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man comes from prophecy out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory. Remember that word, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what did Jesus said? The hour has come for the Son of Man, same title Daniel used, to be glorified. Daniel said he would receive glory. Every other time up at that point, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time. Now, it's time. It looks like they're about to get everything that they've expected. They've expected this Deliverer, this Savior, to come and to set up a kingdom. And they would be in charge. He would be on the throne of his father David, just as God had promised to David that his descendant would sit on his throne forever. This would be the descendant that would sit on David's throne. And they would rule and reign. It looks like we're finally going to get what we expected uh, until verse 24. All of a sudden, Jesus says, truly, truly. So some emphasis there. He's used this same phrase, truly, truly, many times leading up to this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know, at that point... 
it's got to be like you just let all the wind out of their sails. There's so much anticipation and expectation in Israel at this point. Some on the negative with the Pharisees, much on the positive as people are beginning to flock and lay out the palm branches before Jesus. The king is here. It's finally here. The Messiah is actually here. They're ready to start talking throne. And Jesus is ready to start talking cross. It's not a coronation. It's a crucifixion. And they had to feel totally deflated. Why are you talking about death? What do you mean unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies? Why, why are you bringing that up now? Well, because that's how this kingdom comes. There's coming a day when the crown will be worn. There's coming a day when the coronation will take place. But right now, it's time for the cross. And that is what Jesus is headed to. So as we look at this passage and the events before, during, and after, it is completely an unexpected expected. They were expecting the Messiah, and He came, and He presented Himself as King, but it was not going to be what they expected. You see, it wasn't what they expected, but at the same time, it was the things that would need to take place to bring that kingdom. It is the Son of Man coming But first of all, just as in the Old Testament, you can find prophecies about Christ ruling and reigning and sitting on the throne of His Father David. And you also find prophecies of this suffering servant that would come and be wounded for our transgressions. And that we would be healed through His wounding. He would take on our sorrows. He would bear our burdens. And you know what? That's the one that had to come first. The other one comes later. But then He goes on from that point to apply that kingdom to His disciples. He says, look, this is what it's going to look like going forward. And it's the kingdom that we live in now as we embrace Christ and put our faith and trust in Him. It's this unexpected expected. What does He call for? What does Christ's kingdom look like for us? Well, He calls them to focus. He has to get their focus shifted. Right? They're going to have to see things a little bit differently. They're going to have to anticipate something a little bit different than what they were anticipating. He spends time on that focus in verse 25. Verse 25 says, whoever loves his life, loses it. They were thinking they were just about to really love life. We see it a lot in the disciples, right? The apostles would come to Jesus at different times. Hey, when we get into your kingdom, when that that thing gets set up, which they're anticipating is going to be very soon, can one of us sit on your right hand and the other one on your left? They'd have little uh, discussions, kind of arguments among them. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? When Jesus is sitting on the throne, who's who's going to be on that next best seat? Can you imagine what that was like? Peter, James, and John have all got to pull out the card about going on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, you know, it was only us three that got to go on the mountain with Jesus. So you guys are probably left behind. It's probably just between us. Peter, you know, he's kind of quick to put his foot in his mouth. So I can't imagine that he was too quiet in that discussion. James and John, well, even their mom went to Jesus and asked if one of them could sit on his left and his right. So obviously they're thinking about it. Well, not so fast. Jesus says if you're going to love your life in this world, you better hate it. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, Jesus does what he often does with things where he draws a correlation. I don't think he's actually telling you to hate your life. But what he's saying is, if the desires that you would have for your life rival what God wants you to do with your life, then you're in a dangerous position. Comparing these two, this one should be love and this one should be hate in comparison. If your bucket list is more important than your service before God, then you've got a problem. If you're accomplishing the things that you want to see and experience in this lifetime is more important to you than that honor from God the Father, that pat on the back, well done, my good and faithful servant, then you got your priorities out of whack. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching these people. Hey, look, if you came here expecting to sit on the throne, you're going to be sorely disappointed. In fact, if sitting on the throne is so important to you that you won't step in line with what God has you to experience, your focus is very blurry. And that's what He's trying to do with them at this point is He's trying to focus their attention. And you know what? That's where our focus is supposed to be. This world is not our home. This isn't a place where we find our satisfaction. I'm not even sure we should have a bucket list. We're supposed to be doing the things that honor God and serving Him and meeting the needs of others. And this is supposed to be service. Our treasures are supposed to be laid up ahead, not collected down here. That's what the focus of our life needs to be. You know, there's some paradoxes within the Christian faith. You die to self and you live for Christ and you find true and everlasting life. You don't hoard to get, you give to get. So there's all these paradoxes which seems like they're the opposite of what would be true in our flesh because if I really want what's going to be the most satisfying experience for me, then I need to look out for number one and take care of myself. And oh, You see that plastered all over Facebook. Somebody read a thing off of Facebook to me just last night. It was talking about if you need to get away, that's fine. If you need to disappear and get away, that's okay. If you need to show up in a different country under a different name ten years later, that's fine. That's self-care. I thought that's foolishness is what that is. Self-care. We're not here for self-care. We're here to serve, to meet other people's needs. We're here to serve God and focus on Him. And you know what? In the midst of that, you know what happens? Amazingly, you find life. You find that there's, wow, I'm enjoyed. I'm satisfied. I'm you know, I remember years years ago when I was still fairly new Christian, I think I was in Bible college at the time, they started really focused on this whole big self-esteem movement. And focusing on, boy, you can't make anybody feel bad about themselves, only point out positive things. And I guess maybe the fruition of that is all these people that need color books and quiet time now. But it's this whole emphasis of your self-esteem and how do you think of yourself and what do you need to do to pamper yourself so that you get the best out of life. And you know, I thought, man, this is a dead-end road. You know why? Because a proper self-esteem is not found in focusing on yourself. It just isn't. You want to get a proper self-esteem, you forget about yourself and look around and find somebody you can help and dig in and start helping them. And you know what? Pretty soon you'll have a good self-esteem. You'll feel all right. But as much as you focus on yourself, you'll just find that things don't work out the way you always want them to. And well, you just don't quite have it like you should have it. And it's a wrong way to go. Unless a kernel of grain, single tiny little thing, he says, if it falls to the earth and dies, look at all the life that comes from that. One commentator says millions of living grains come from that one grain that fell to the earth and died. Look at Jesus. One man died to give life. And how many millions of people have found eternal life in Christ since that moment? Is both a prophecy of what would happen through, the, through Christianity as well as just a result of what happens within us. Because Jesus doesn't leave it there. He then turns it toward us and says the Gospel that He's proclaiming, that He would die on the cross and then give life would come through His death, is not only for us to believe in, but also for us to model. He said this is not only what you believe to be saved and to inherit eternal life, this is what you live in your life. You want to see life in other people? Lay down yours. You want to see benefits for people? Sacrifice yours. And that's what will come of it. I remember listening to Bill Gothard. He was the guy that used to do Basic Youth Institute in different coliseums around the nation. And I remember him talking about his own testimony when he was a teenager. He said at the end of junior high, one of his teachers told him, when you get to high school, you're going to have all kinds of opportunities out there. He says, "Uh, let me encourage you to do one thing. Before you get involved in anything, ask yourself, what difference will this make in 10 years? And what difference will this make in eternity? 
And he went to a rather large school and there were a lot of opportunities and he began to ask himself those two questions. And he says, pretty soon I found I had a lot of time on my hands. Now, I personally think that some of those things help shape you, so I do think they have a long-term and even eternal benefit. But, but he said, I found a lot of time on my hands. He said, so then I started asking myself, okay, what could I do? And like I said, he went to a large school. And you know what this one high school kid did? They found a creative different way each year to get the gospel to every student in their student body personally each year for the next three years. He set himself to accomplishing something bigger. Now, what did that mean? That means he sacrificed some things that maybe he would have liked to have participated in. He had to kind of die to those things to live to this. And he said, you know what? No regrets. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul describes his own ministry as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. He wasn't even there when Jesus told him he needed to die to themselves that they might live to God. But the Apostle Paul caught hold of that truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Where did Paul get the idea? From Him. What did Jesus do? He became poor so that we could become rich. He became dead so that we could become alive. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, as Paul writes to the, those that would have wealth within the church, and there are some, He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly, I love the play on words here, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, he points to those that would have look at the world's wealth and those things as what wealth was. And he said, you know, don't get too caught up in that. That's that's shakable. That's uncertain. But rather, you know what? Here's where your wealth is. It's in good works. When you enrich other people with your life through your abilities and your means, that's where real wealth is. And when you do that, you know what happens? You gain a treasure that can't be shaken in a place that can't be shaken where you'll get to enjoy it for all eternity. Even the letters to the churches, when you look at the book of Revelation, Chapters 2 and 3 are letters of churches. And to one church he writes, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but then he inserts, but you're rich. In Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18, now this is to a different church. For you say, he tells them, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. What's God's assessment? Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And God takes this church that looked at themselves as being very rich. And He says, you're not rich, you're poor. The other church that thought they were poor is very rich. But you who think you're rich, you're very poor. He says, actually, you know what you need to do? You need to get rid of that and come to Me where the true riches lie. Well, Matthew Chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, Jesus would say, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now again, does Jesus really want us to, as in Luke, hate our family members? No. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if anyone, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, does Jesus want us to hate our family members? No, that's not the point. The point is we need to love Him so much that our affection for our family members, if held in comparison, would look like hate. In other places around Scripture, the Bible calls for you to sacrifice for your family members, to love your family members, to... But you know what? They're not your God. Only one is your God. And nobody, even a close family member, can take that place. Only God can be God in your life. And you see, that's what Jesus is. He's going to the cross and He knows it. He's telling those disciples, you guys need to shift your focus. You're focusing on where you sit in proximity to the throne and we're not there yet. In fact, He says, whoever follows Me is going to be where I am. Where is He going to the cross? They had to love Christ more than their life. But you know what? The same is true of us. We have to love Christ more than our very life itself. You know, a man named George Mueller, I remember reading about him in a Lives of Great Preachers class that I had accomplished amazing things, had an amazing ministry. And one, one person asked him at one time, they asked him why he felt he was so successful in ministry, how he had been given this ministry that he enjoyed. And his answer was this, he says, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of brethren and friends. You see, the fact of the matter is is that we are called to die so that Christ can live in us. And then, as the one commentator went on to say this, it is then, when you have died, that you end up with a life that the fake ones admire. That's what happens. Life comes from death. That's when we lay down our life that we really learn to live. Well, not only does he call us to focus, but He calls us to follow. He says, if anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And where I am, there will My servant be also. If anyone serves Me, the Father will honor him. One person said this, it says, the whole of our duty is found in that word, follow Him. And the whole of our reward is found in that phrase, He will be with Me where I am. And the Father will honor Him. And so we have the whole of our duty and the whole of our reward right here in this one little verse. And what, what is uh, to be our focus? Just to follow. We're not the leaders. We just need to follow. You know, it's not far from. Remember just back in chapter 10, what did Jesus say? This was a, char- a defining characteristic of believers. He said, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. John chapter 12 and verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And so he calls us to focus and then he also calls us to follow. But then lastly, notice he also calls us to fruitfulness. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus calls us to fruitfulness. In fact, we're going to find when we get up to John chapter 15, 
in the first two verses of that chapter, he's going to say, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verses 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Bear fruit. God has called us to fruitfulness. But you know what? If our life is so full of things that we want to do and experience and see and taste, and we're not going to bear fruit. If we're willing to die to some of those things, we'll bear fruit. You see, you can't make a difference in somebody else's life without losing a part of yours. Because any amount of time that you take to help somebody else is time that you could have done something else with. Any effort that you make on your part to benefit somebody else's life is effort that you could have spent doing something else. You see, you cannot be in somebody else's life without sacrificing part of yours. Or maybe, since we're focusing on fruitfulness, maybe I should put it this way, you cannot benefit somebody else's life without investing part of yours. And that truly is an investment.